Let me ask you to go ahead and turn with us to the book of Romans in chapter 8. This morning we're going to begin reading in verse 18. So Romans 8 beginning in verse 18. And we'll read through verse 23. Romans 8 beginning in verse 18. This is the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we waited eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We'll stop there. Typhoon hits the Philippines, more than 6,000 dead, 1,800 missing. Wildfires ravage Australia, 200 homes destroyed. Earthquake in Pakistan, 400 dead. Floods in Mexico, 55 dead, three quarters of a million stranded. Floods in India, 5,700 presumed dead. Tornado in Oklahoma, 24 dead. Meteor explodes above Russia, 1,200 injured. Those were just a few of the headlines from 2013 that remind us that there is something wrong with this world in which we live. Whatever else we might say, we know that this world that we live in is no paradise. The very planet on which we tread sometimes convulses and brings danger and even death upon human beings. Scientists call Earth a violent planet, pointing out the constant change that is happening in Earth's geology and in the Earth's weather systems. Our planet is not stable and fixed. It is constantly shifting. It is constantly changing. And what are we to make of this? I've entitled this sermon, The Creation's Groaning. And that title comes from verse 22 where we read that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I wonder, what do you think this means? What is God teaching us through the Apostle Paul when he says that the creation not only is groaning, but that it has been groaning till now? Now, when I think of groaning, I tend to think first of mumbling and complaining. 
I think of someone who is discontent, someone who is whining. I wonder if that ever describes you. I hope that we as, as Christians are learning to put away that kind of groaning. We, we are not to be a people who grumble. We are not to be a people who complain. James 5 verse 9 gives us a very strong warning about this. It says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Same word, by the way. Uh, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so we're not to be a groaning people in that way. We're not to be people who grumble and complain. But there is a sense in which Christians are to be a groaning people. You see, this word groaning is more often used in the Scriptures in a different way. For example, consider the man who was deaf and had a speech impediment in Luke's Gospel. And this man was brought to Jesus, and and Jesus healed him in a peculiar way. Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears, and then after spitting, touched the man's tongue. And then we are told that Jesus looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh or deep groan, it's the same word, he said, be opened. And the man was healed. And so Jesus groaned as he was healing this man. Now, was Jesus complaining, grumbling, whining? No, not at all. Jesus was expressing the deep anguish in his heart over this fallen world and over the tragedy of human disability. Jesus' groan was a cry to his Father, a, a longing for this man to be restored and made whole. And his Father, through the Spirit, empowered Jesus in his humanity to heal this man. So I ask you, have you ever groaned in that way? This is a deep groaning, a groaning from the heart. It includes both a sense of ache, a sense of yearning, a sense of longing. 2 Corinthians 5.2 says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. In other words, we know that this creation, including our bodies, is broken, and we feel the anguish of pain and frailty and weakness, and we long for the day when this world will be made new and our bodies will be made new. Christians are to groan in this godly way, longing for the day of redemption. Romans 8 is going to teach us about three groanings. In verses 19 through 22, we have the groaning of creation. In verses 23 through 25, we have the groaning of God's people. And in verses 26 and 27, we have the groaning of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to be studying three groanings. Today our focus is the groaning of creation. And notice that Paul tells us a bit about the past, about the present, and about the future of this groaning creation. He he looks to the past to tell us how creation got this way so that it's groaning. 
He looks to the future to tell us what is in store for this groaning creation. And then he especially emphasizes the past. I'm sorry, the present. That even now creation is groaning. And just as creation is longing for that day to come, so we as Christians should be longing for that day to come. Now, it's important for us to see how Paul speaks of creation in these verses. After all, we live in a society in which many people have very different understandings of this world that we live in. There are very many that have a purely materialistic view of this world. They believe that this world is nothing more than energy and matter That creation is not creation at all because there is no creator. When pressed, they either believe that everything came from nothing or that energy and matter has eternally existed. But for them, there is no God that rules over creation. There's no designer. There's no architect. There's no creator. This universe is the result of pure chance. It is governed by pure chance. Everything is a result of scientific principles at work, period. And for those who see the world that way, this passage will make absolutely no sense whatsoever. For them, in the big scheme of things, neither your life nor my life has any lasting significance. We are just blips on the screen of an ever-changing random world. Others want to maintain something of the divine in this world. And so there are pantheists who say that we need not choose whether it is God who is eternal or matter and energy that is eternal. Rather, they say the answer is both because God is matter and matter is God. They say the rocks and the trees and the birds and your fingers, these are all a part of a cosmic God. Others speak of Mother Nature or Mother Earth. They treat the changes in our world as the doing of this divine mother who gives life to us all. Similar beliefs lead people to hold that the gods are encased in this material world that we too share in their divinity since we are material beings. These were the beliefs of ancient paganism And they've returned in the forms of radical feminism and radical environmentalism. What we learn from Paul is that we are not to see the world in any of these kinds of ways. There is a sharp distinction between God and his creation. God is not one with his creation. He stands apart from it. He is able to subject it to futility. In other words, God is able to act upon creation without acting upon himself. He is distinct from his creation. God is eternal. Creation had a beginning. This is why Paul speaks in these terms. The very word creation implies a beginning that comes from the hands of a creator. The cry of the Christian is, this is my father's world. Now if that's true, and this is our father's world, what's wrong with it? 
Why is it so messed up? I mean, our God is perfect. We would not expect him to create a world with so many problems. In fact, the book of Genesis tells us that when God had finished his creation, he looked at it, he surveyed it, and he pronounced it very good. So what's gone wrong? Well, Paul teaches us about creation's past in verse 20. In verse 20. And there what we see is that creation was subjected to futility. Do you see that there? That phrase, subjected to futility, in verse 20? And you know what that word futility means. If I say, resistance is futile, what am I saying? I'm saying there's no point in resisting. You cannot win. Your efforts will be in vain. You cannot hope to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Well, Paul says that all of creation has now been subjected to futility. That the good purpose that was given to creation at the beginning has been lost. Here is one place that we as Christians differ with others. Others say that you and I are just a small part of this world. But Christianity says that this world exists for us. Christianity says that human beings are not a small part of this world, that we are an important part of this world, that God created this world for human beings. God made the universe for man, not man for the universe. The chief creation of God was Adam. The universe was created as a dwelling place for Adam. God gave to Adam the Garden of Eden with the fruit of every tree for his food, except one. The rivers were for Adam. The animals were under Adam's authority. He gave them names. They were submissive to him. Adam was created to do on a micro scale what God does on a macro scale. He was created to have dominion over this world, to enjoy this world, to find his pleasure in managing this world, being a good steward of this world, caring for, cultivating this world. Man was created to enjoy creation as from it we brought art and music and fine foods and amazing technologies. This world was created to be our home. And God himself would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was a time when this world was paradise. This world was heaven. And then... The creation was subjected to futility. The great purpose of this world being a home to God's children was lost. The great purpose of God's people finding joy in cultivating this world for the glory of God was lost. We lost our status as children of God. We rebelled against God. We sinned against God. And our sin not only affected us, 
our sin affected this whole creation. This world was created for man and given to man, and thus when God cursed man, God's curse fell upon creation as well. Genesis 3, beginning of verse 17, And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And from that day onward, this world has been a mess. This world has been deformed, broken, twisted, made sick. Joel chapter 1 beginning in verse 16 describes God's response to man's sin. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down. The grain has dried up. Oh, how the animals groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed. There is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. This is describing terrible famine. The world not producing the way the world is supposed to produce. The rain not coming the way the rain was supposed to come. Because God is gracious, it is not always like this everywhere, but it is always like this somewhere. And often, the world is like this at many places at one time. Famine and drought, this world not operating the way it was meant to operate as a hospitable home for God's creatures, and especially for man. Jeremiah 12, verse 4, teaches that God cursed the natural world because of man's sin. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. Jeremiah says that the land mourns, the grass is withering, the beasts and the birds are swept away. Why? Because of the evil of those who dwell in the land human beings one more Isaiah 24 beginning of verse 4 the earth mourns and withers the world languishes and withers the highest people of the earth languish the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws violated the statutes broken the everlasting covenant Why are there tornadoes and hurricanes and famines? It's because of our sin. When Katrina came to New Orleans, I don't think that we could say with 100% assurance that hurricane hit New Orleans because of the sin of the people of New Orleans. But we can say with 100% biblical accuracy 
that the reason hurricanes exist at all and kill human beings is because of the sin of man. Because of your sin, my sin, and our sin. It is God's curse on us. What does this mean practically? What does the curse on this world mean? It means that this earth has lost much of its original beauty and glory. We still stand in all of the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls, but who knows what more astounding wonders existed before God radically changed the world and judged it in Noah's flood. Just as the human mind and the body has been made weaker and more frail, our abilities lessened by the fall, so this world has been made weaker and frail and less glorious than it once was. This world no longer has the stability it once had. We certainly see a difference in the animal kingdom. Before the fall, we find the animals coming obediently to Adam, receiving their names. We read of a talking serpent, and Eve doesn't act shocked that the serpent talks. You put these points together, it lends some weight to the idea that animals perhaps were much more intelligent before the fall than they are today. Maybe there was a time when all animals talked the way Balaam's donkey did. Clearly, there was no hostility between man and the animals when we read Genesis 2, but beginning in Genesis 3, everything changes. Wild animals no longer come to man. They fear us. They do not trust our dominion, our rule. They fear us. If a wild animal comes near to us, what do we assume? It's something wrong with it. It's sick. It's out to hurt us. People die every year from insect bites and scorpion stings and the venom of snakes. Sharks and lions and bears and wolves not only sometimes attack and kill people, but even eat them. This is how far off course our world has come from what it was in the beginning. And because of our sinful hearts, we often do as much or more damage to the creation than the creation does to us. I will not apologize for pointing out that man has indeed polluted many rivers and polluted many skies. Man has indeed often taken some of the wonders of this world that God left for us and spoiled them through poor stewardship and selfish motives. How often do we read of animals being abused by human beings? It's an utter perversion of the mandate that God gave to us. Death is everywhere in this cursed creation. Plants die. Animals die. And we die. This world was to be a life, a world of life, a world of eternal, unending life. Now this world is a world of death and decay. The entire natural world is caught up in God's judgment against man. It was not just people who died in the flood of Noah. And it isn't just people that die in earthquakes and hurricanes and floods. Indeed, we are told that this entire creation, with every plant and every animal that's on it, is on its way to the furnace. And that as the whole earth was once immersed in water, one day the whole universe will be baptized in fire. 
Note that in verse 20, Paul adds the words, not willingly. You see that? Subjected to futility, but not willingly. His point cannot be clearer. It was not creation that chose for things to be this way. Indeed, though he is using anthropomorphic language, this world does not actually have a mind or a heart or a will. It is not creation's fault that it has come to this state. We are to blame. We are the appointed stewards of this world. We are the ones that were given this world for our enjoyment. And that great privilege came with the awesome responsibility of husbanding this world well. And stewardship always begins by maintaining a right relationship with God. I'm going to say it again. Stewardship always begins by maintaining a right relationship with God. Husbands, you will never care for your wife well if you are not maintaining a healthy relationship with God. When you sin and bring God's discipline upon you, it not only affects you, but it affects your wife as well. Parents, you will never care for your children well if you are not maintaining a healthy relationship with God. When you as parents are living in disobedience to God, the consequences will not just affect you, the consequences will affect your children. Our God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Grandparents, this applies to you as well. Anyone in here who has any kind of authority over other people or anything at all, Hear this principle. You cannot care for others well. You cannot be a good steward of them when you are not walking rightly with God yourself. For when you provoke God's wrath or when you provoke God's loving discipline, it will not only affect you, but it will affect all that you are over in this world. And thus all of creation has been affected because of our sin against God. Now notice the last part of verse 20. But because of him who subjected it in hope. Who is it that subjected this creation to futility? Well, we've just said that it was man's sin that brought the curse upon this world. That the curse is our curse, but that cannot be who Paul has in mind in verse 20. Because he says that the person who subjected the creation to futility did so in hope. That is that this person subjected creation to futility with an eager expectation of something different in the future. In other words, whoever did this had a plan. Whoever did this not only had a plan, but was looking forward to the day when that plan would reach its appointed end. Remember, hope in the Bible is not a wishy-washy thing. It's a, it's a settled thing. It's a confident looking forward to something that has been planned to come. And the only person who can be said to have subjected this world to futility with hope, looking forward to a better plan, is God himself. Yes, man's sin brought the curse on this world. But it was God that pronounced the curse. It was God who issued the curse. 
It is God who has ultimate dominion. And it is God who does as he deems fit with this world. And it is God who subjected this world to futility. Now I'm going to make five brief points about God doing this and then we're going to save the rest of our study for next week. Five quick points about God having done this. Number one, let us note that this world's brokenness is due to the judicial action of God. The judicial action of God. God did not act recklessly or carelessly or whimsically when he cursed this world. This was not God having lost control of his temper and in a moment of thoughtlessness he pronounced the curse. No, this was a judicial, careful act. He was acting as a faithful judge. And every time we see a child born with a disability, and every time we hear of an earthquake or see a rabid animal, we are seeing the justice of God against man's sin. Second, let us tremble before the power and the might and the wrath of God. We do not worship a tame God. We do not worship a domesticated God whom we control, who fits into our constraints of social nicety. No, we worship a God who is above us, beyond us, and to whom we are beholden. We worship a God who speaks in thunder and lightning, in fire and deep rumblings. Our God is a consuming fire. This world is his work. He has free reign to do over it as he pleases. And when he is sinned against, he has every right and ability to strike out against this world in fearful justice. Our God is not a safe God. He will not bow to your will. You must bow to his. And the futility of this world is a small taste of his wrath because we have refused to bow. Third, let us therefore see the heinousness of our sin. Let us therefore see the heinousness of our sin. Let us see that our sin is no small thing. Everywhere you look in this world, you have evidence screaming at you that sin brings disastrous consequences. Oh, your flesh is out to deceive you. The devil is out to deceive you. It's a small sin. It's not a big deal. It won't matter much. Everything around you, if you look, is saying, curse because of sin. Justice is punitive. Do not think that you can sin and there be no penalty. The glory of the God against whom we sin demands that His glory be vindicated. If God's glory be not vindicated, if His honor be not upheld, this world will fall into chaos. God Himself will cease to be God. 
Every time you sin, you dishonor the glory of God. And if that sin is not met with punishment, if God's glory is not upheld, the very universe will unravel from this thread of justice that is woven into the whole fabric. You pull out the thread of justice from this world, and the whole world falls apart. Justice exists because God exists and because God's glory exists. And therefore, every sin that we commit is a, com- is a sin of treason against the fabric of this world, against God himself, against all that is good and right. And this is the reason that even the very least sin is enough to condemn us to hell. Because even the very least sin in our eyes is an abomination to a God of justice. When you attack the glory of God, you attack everything that holds this world together. Fourth, let us recognize that God's wrath against sin today in this world is a warning about a greater wrath to come. God's wrath seen in this world today is a warning about a greater wrath to come. We look at the natural disasters We look at the millions of children born with terrible disabilities. We look at the hostility of animals towards men. And we might be tempted to say, what a harsh God we serve. What a cruel God. See how great are his judgments. But dear friends, the wrath of God that we see in this world is only a tiny fraction of what our sins deserve. The curse of God that we see being worked out in this world is just enough to teach us that we should treat this God with reverence and with fear. But even in the midst of the hurricanes and the storms of this life, God's mighty right hand of judgment is being held back by his mercy and his grace. If God should treat us as we deserve, this whole earth would have been thrown into hell a long time ago. Rather, this is a time of mercy. We do not have a hurricane happening now. This is a moment of mercy. And when they do happen, it's to wake us up that this day of mercy will not last and a day of judgment is coming. So let us repent and act now before it's too late. The amazing thing about The amazing thing is not how great God's judgments are today, but how small they are, especially compared to what we are due. We are living in a cursed world, but we are also living in a world filled with the patience of God, filled with the mercy of God. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day when we can still escape the ultimate wrath of God and be saved. And so fifth and finally, let us learn to flee to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the door to heaven. Jesus is the one you must go through to be right with God. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserved in our place if we believe. For the Christian, while we still live in this cursed world for a while, there is no wrath of God towards us. For the Christian, every hurricane is being worked by God for our good. For the Christian, even the curse is turned into blessing by the last day. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have been adopted as his children. When a person submits to God's son and follows him, God is pleased to move that person from under his righteous wrath and into his gracious love. Heaven instead of hell. Friends, there is no other way of salvation. Jesus is God's appointed way of salvation. And you dare not reject it. And you dare not refuse it. Your choices are to turn from your sins and follow Jesus and accept the gift of grace that God holds out to you. Or your choice is to remain a rebel against a God who is much more powerful than you are. You will not win. You will not win. And he will cast you into hell. And so I ask you, will you turn from your sins and humble yourself before Almighty God? Will you take hold of his one way of salvation? Faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that all of us will so that the curse for us will be turned to blessing and you will know what it is to walk the streets of this earth again made new. Let's pray. We'll take a few moments to think about what's been said, what you've seen from verse 20 and heard from the Word of God. How should you respond to God in these moments?